Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Industries podcast. My name is Oliver Hartwig and today we are joined by Sue Barker. Sue Barker is a lawyer, director of Sue Barker Charities Law and an expert on everything related to charities in New Zealand. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Oliver. It's a pleasure to be here. We want to talk about charities, but I think because most people are probably not experts in charities law, we probably have to start with a few definitions. So you are dealing with charities. You've been doing this in a research capacity for the last couple of years. Just how would you define a charity? And what is a charity? What is a not-for-profit? Not for how are the two concepts linked? Thank you. That's a very good question. I mean, traditional Western research would structure society into three categories. So we have the, the business sector, which is private organisations operating for public purposes. We have the government sector, which is public organisations operating for public purposes. And then we have the the third sector or civil society or the not-for-profit sector, whatever you want to call it, the Tangata Venefa Community and Voluntary Sector, which is fundamentally private organisations operating for public purposes. So the not-for-profit sector, organisations are defined by their purposes. Every not-for-profit organisation must have a purpose and it's required to further that purpose. And it Every not-for-profit organisation must have in their constituting document what's called a, a non-distribution constraint. So they are prevented from by their constitution from providing private returns to any individual. Now, charities are a specific subset of the not-for-profit organisation. Their purposes must meet the definition of being charitable, which is a definition informed by centuries of case law, mostly inherited from England. So not-for-profits precede charities because charities as such are a creature of the state in a way as a form of organisation. Charities are an organi a form of organisation, but... I wouldn't say they're a creature of the state. No, just in, in the form that they use. Well, charities can take any form. I mean, there is no specific... A legal form. Yes, any legal yes, form. There's yes. no specific structure in New Zealand that's specifically designed for charities. So charities have to make do with legal structures that have been designed for other purposes, such as companies or trusts. So we have this wonderful concept of a charitable trust. Most charities are in New Zealand are structured as charitable trusts, otherwise incorporated societies, and there are some not-for-profit companies and some other structures, but... But the important thing to realise here is that though they use structures created by the state, they are not part of the state sector. Absolutely. So the, the, key, the key aspect of these three different sectors is that we really have to be careful about maintaining the boundaries. So charities are, by definition, separate from the state. And they have been for centuries because it's a very old idea, isn't it? Absolutely. Well, the concept of charitable purpose that most common law jurisdictions use dates back to 1601 and the Statute of Elizabeth. And many people think that that means it's anachronistic and it's paternalistic and it's no longer fit for our time. But actually, it's very sophisticated. And the reason it's been around for four centuries is because it actually is flexible and able to change over time and meet, meet our needs over time. So it, it is a, a perambulatory concept. And it had its early heyday probably in the... 18th, 19th century friendly societies, early 20th century as well, but it's evolved and the charity sector, actually, if you could give us an idea, how big is it in New Zealand these days? The charitable sector has approximately $60 billion of assets under management. Its annual income is approximately $20 billion, so it's, it's bigger than most of our major industries. Right. Now, I know you think it has changed a lot, not just in New Zealand, but globally in the last 20, 25 years. What's happened there? 
What really concerns me in New Zealand is, uh, and around the world is the impact of 9-11. So following the, the terrorist attacks that occurred in the US on um, 9 September 2001, the Financial Action Task Force issued a series of special recommendations relating to terrorist financing. And special recommendation eight related to not-for-profit organisations and said that it encouraged states to review the adequacy of their laws relating to not-for-profit organisations, saying that they were particularly vulnerable no, j- just abused. a step backwards. It wasn't charities committing the terrorist attacks. Absolutely not. They were not even involved in it, right? No. Apparently, one of the terrorist pilots had been funded through a US not-for-profit organisation, but there was no evidence that not-for-profit organisations were in any way more likely to be abused for terrorist financing than any other type of organisation. So it was one of these overreactions after 9-11? I would argue, and FATF has actually since revised its uh, special recommendation 8, and it no longer includes this vulnerable wording, and it specifically encourages states to protect the legitimate activities of charities and not-for-profit organisations and recognise that they're part of the solution rather than part of the problem. But the damage was done. So what specifically do charities now have to do and what, which countries were involved in these changes? Well, what happened after after Special Recommendation 8 is that there was a wave of charities legislation around the world. About 50 countries and territories introduced charities legislation. And, and it, I haven't studied all of them, but certainly in the case of New Zealand and also Ireland, it was pressure from the Financial Action Task Force following 9-11 that led to specific legislation for charities. So that is a driving factor and why we have the Charities Act 2005. Actually, there was another wave after the Arab Spring in 2010 and another 70 countries issued legislation restricting civil society after that. So we now have legislation around the world, what's called framework legislation, that restricts the the registration and ongoing operations of charities and other not-for-profit entities. So that probably makes charities' lives a lot harder. Yes, it does, because the problem with this legislation is that it's currently being used around the world as a tool for suppression of not-for-profit advocacy, and we're seeing a global democratic retreat around the world. Apparently, at the moment, 90% of the world's population is currently living in countries rated as repressed, obstructed, or closed, and even Australia and much of Europe are rated as narrowed. And one of the One of the key dots that I think hasn't been joined is that this legislation, charities legislation that's being used to restrict charities' activities, is one of the key mechanisms being used to spread authoritarianism around the world. So what started as a tool in the quest of anti-money laundering has actually turned into something to turn charities around and make them an arm of the state? Absolutely. We are exploiting charities for community service delivery while restricting their role in broader civil society. And the impact on our democracy, our social cohesion and our community well-being, I think, is you know needs to be looked at. Okay, but these are basically two very distinct aspects. So one is actually making the operations of charities more cumbersome for everybody involved. I mean, even getting a bank account opened. The other one is actually to also then lead the charities towards delivering services that previously were delivered by government. Yes, and that's how authoritarian states like China and uh, the Russian Federation are are exploiting their charities law frameworks. They are basically using it to devolve community service delivery to community organisations while at the same time preventing their role in broader civil society. Yeah, and, and shutting down whole branches of charities. I mean, Memorial in, in Russia is the probably worst example of that. 
absolutely. Long-standing charities, well-run, doing wonderful work in the community. They have left. Civil society has been dismantled. I mean, there was never that much civil society in Russia anyway, but especially after... This round of legislation, there's not much left at all. Yes, I'm thinking there's one in particular called Memorial, which was, yes, uh, yes it's it's tragic. And, and what's happened in Hong Kong as well, it's tragic. Plus, of course, international organizations operating in these countries also being deregistered. So I think that's part of it. Okay, but this is Russia and China. But let's talk about New Zealand. So what is happening to our charities sector here? Well, what worries me is that all of these tendencies that authoritarian states are using, like favouring service delivery organisations through easier registration, less state control of their activities, potential participation in policy making and prestige generally, while using the charities law framework as a tool for suppression of not-for-profit advocacy. We're doing that here. It's it's happening here. And I think we're sleepwalking on this conveyor belt, this global conveyor belt towards increasing authoritarianism. What would be an example of that? Well, I think the Supreme Court decision in Family First is an example of that. What happened? Well, Family First is a registered charity. They've been registered since the Charities Register in New Zealand started. And Um, it's a broadly conservative charity or pressure advocacy group? They, they, their charitable purpose was basically to promote the traditional family mm-hmm. and they were accepted as a charity, their, their registration was reviewed and they were accepted again as a charity so they are a registered charity and then the gay marriage bill was going through parliament and they made submissions opposing it and the gay marriage bill passed and Family First was deregistered on the basis that its advocacy work precluded it from being a charity. Family First appealed to the High Court, was unsuccessful, but it appealed to the Court of Appeal and was successful. The, the Court of Appeal confirmed that its purposes are charitable and all the work that it was doing was in furtherance of its stated charitable purposes. But the Attorney General appealed to the Supreme Court in his capacity as the protector of charities. And the Supreme Court upheld the appeal. So Family First has been deregistered basically for engaging in the democratic process. Well, let's unpack this a bit. I mean, it doesn't really matter where you stand on gay marriage, but if you have a particular point of view and you engage in a democratic decision-making process, you make a submission to parliament. I mean, that's basically what submissions to parliament are for. Exactly. And this is how you undermine civil society. So now we have this chilling effect whereby charities up and down the country are too scared to speak up for their charitable purposes for fear of losing their registration and, and also their funding. I mean, the government, the, the prevalence of government contracting also can be used as a, as a lever to stop charities from advocating for their charitable purposes. So is the effect to signal to other charities that if you do not agree with government policy, no matter what it might be, there's always a threat hanging over you and we might just take you off the list. Absolutely, absolutely. And the the chilling effect is enormous. And what that does is it undermines the independence of charities. And and if you think of that three-legged stool, the three aspects of society, it basically subsumes the charitable sector into the government sector and we we have a two-legged stool. And the impact on our society, in my view, is enormous. So that was family first. Are there other examples? Oh, there are examples up and down. Like the, the Greenpeace had a, a similar 12-year battle to take its rightful place on the charities register. They eventually were successful, but it went all the way to the Supreme Court. It was a 12-year battle before they were finally confirmed as eligible for charitable registration. 
And, you know, most charities would not have the wherewithal to be able to withstand a 12-year litigation process. They'd be burned off by the process. So we all owe Greenpeace, in my view, a huge debt of gratitude for, for having the, the perseverance to, to persist with their appeal. At what stage do you think are there limits to what still makes a charity a charity? Are, are there legitimate reasons to deregister charities when they become too much like a private business? I mean, there there are there are boundaries, but the 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 common law, the actual underlying law of charities, is actually very permissive as to charities' activities. If your ch purposes are charitable, the law does the the common law, the underlying law, does not restrict your activities. I mean, charities, of course, are subject to the general law, so they can't engage in hate speech. They can't engage in electoral. They can't breach the electoral act, the copyright act. There's, Wasn't know. that one of the problems actually with the Greenpeace case that they were often engaged in illegal activities when they occupy companies, for example? It was one of the issues in Greenpeace that that led to their not being accepted for registration. But the High Court ultimately said that a certain amount of civil disobedience is actually consistent with charitable purpose, and good okay. on them for doing that because, mm -hmm. of course, it is that is that is how they are furthering their charitable purposes. Mm -hmm. Now, there is more legislation currently before the House, so we are probably becoming more restrictive in due course. What are what, some of the things that the government wants to do now? The Charities Amendment Bill was introduced into Parliament in September last year. It's currently, the Select Committee is currently hearing submissions on the bill. It it really... It's one of those bills that really flies under the radar. Exactly. We're talking about everything else, but not this. Exactly. And it, it really goes to the heart of the type of society that we want to live in. Everybody should be concerned about what is in this bill, but it's passing through under the radar, I agree. Has there been any coverage of this? I, have, I can't remember it, at least. No, I haven't seen any. Not in the mainstream media. Not... Not this year, not not since it's been introduced, not that I'm aware of. Okay, so you have to fill us in then. So, <laughs> so what is in the bill and what do we have to expect for charities in the future? Well, can I start by saying, just by a little bit by way of background, is that when the original charities bill was introduced into Parliament in 2004, it was widely regarded to be fundamentally flawed and it was almost completely rewritten at select committee stage in response to hundreds of submissions. And the rewritten bill was not subject to proper consultation and it was rushed through under urgency without proper consultation. But the then Minister of Finance, Michael Cullen, the Honourable Sir Dr Michael Cullen, said, look, don't worry about it, charitable sector, we'll give it a proper post-implementation review. And here we are, almost 20 years later, and we're still waiting for a proper first principles post-implementation review. We haven't had any such review, but we have had, over the last 18 years or so, a series of piecemeal amendments that have again, again been rushed through under urgency without proper consultation, often against the strong opposition of the charitable sector. And what we now have is, is a flawed piece of legislation that is full of unintended consequences. And probably under both major parties. It doesn't really matter who's in government. Exactly. This really, in my view, needs to be cross-party. These issues are as fundamental to our society as superannuation. We should be getting cross-party agreement on how to get the best framework of charity. Actually, are, are there opinion. any party political differences, disagreements on uh, this kind of bill? Oh, there, there have been over the years. It was very controversial when the Charities Commission was disestablished in 2012 under a national government because charities thought that the independence of the Charities Commission or the, the function of deciding who can or cannot be on the register should be decided by an agency that is independent of government. And now that we have decisions effectively being made by a business unit of the Department of Internal Affairs, 
the decisions are effectively being made by government, which undermines the independence of charity. So that was very controversial at the time. In 2017, it was the manifesto policy of the Labour Party to finally undertake this proper first principles post-implementation review of the Charities Act, including looking at the Charities Commission and looking at the definition of charitable purpose. But the review that we got was a highly attenuated review. Actually, who led it? Originally, it was the Honourable Peony Henare, who was the Minister for the Community and Voluntary Sector at the time. And this decision, oh no, we won't do a proper first principles review, we'll just look at a few issues, was made behind closed doors without any consultation with the charitable sector. And it was very controversial. It was then picked up by the Honourable Porto Williams, who wrote the Labour Party manifesto. And I thought she was going to go back and honour the manifesto, but no, she decided to continue with the work that Peony Henare started. And now the Minister is Priyanka, the Honourable Priyanka Radhakrishnan, who again has agreed to just continue the work that the Honourable Peony Henare started. So we have, we have this attenuated review that was attenuated even further to only three issues. Priyanka Radhakrishnan extended it to five issues in April 2021, but it basically deals with these five discrete issues, almost none of which are of concern to the charitable sector. Just, just to take it a step backwards, you say uh, the whole thing is administered internally by internal affairs. Yeah. The reviews are also done behind closed doors by the ministers. None of this actually uh, cries out transparency. Absolutely, absolutely. So wouldn't it be better to have an external commission, not led by a politician, maybe by a judge, or maybe some people with previous charity involvement to actually review how this law has worked for them? That is what the charitable sector has been pushing for. They would like an independent first principles review carried out by the Law Commission, as they did with the Incorporated Societies Review and the Trusts Review, both of which have produced enormous resource for the charitable sector, which is very helpful. If the if the Law Commission is not available, and we know they're busy, other jurisdictions like Australia, Northern Ireland and England and Wales have con convened a separate panel, an independent panel. It absolutely needs to be conducted by a body independent of DIA, because what we've got at the moment is DIA reviewing itself. Can I just add one thing? Sure. When the Charities Commission was disestablished in 2012, they established the Charities Registration Board, which is supposed to be independent, and that's supposed to protect the independence of the decision making. And there's no question that the board, of the integrity of the board, and there's no question of interference from the minister, but the the, the the, the rub, the difficulty, is that charity services provide secretarial and administrative support to the board and the relationship between the two is so close that decisions are effectively being made by a business unit of a government department. Just another question, just for clarification, what role does the Attorney General play in this? Well, exactly. That would be another helpful issue that a proper first principles review of the Charities Act could look at. Well, because I'm asking the right questions, yeah, at least. <laughs> absolutely. Because, you know, the in common law, the Attorney General has a role as, as parents patriae, which is basically the protector of charities. But it does raise a question as, as how does it protect charities by appealing a court of appeal decision that has found Family First eligible for registration and having that decision overturned. So I think there are lots of questions that need to be asked by a proper first principles review. Also a relatively difficult relationship then between the Attorney General and the Internal Affairs Minister. Well, they seem to be singing from the same song sheet because what happened is there are 
of the myriad unintended consequences that are in the Charities Act, one of them is the appeals process. And the Charities Registration Board can't appeal a decision that it's unhappy with. But the Attorney General is subject to no such restriction. So what we have is the same person, the same council, basically just changing hats and now making the same arguments that would have been made when acting for the Charities Registration Board. So I think these issues raise a lot of questions that really need to be looked at. Okay, so back to the bill. What's in it? <laughs> well, it reflects the fact that it's been written by the Department of Internal Affairs with great respect. It's couched in terms that its uh, objective is to make practical changes to support charities to continue their vital contribution to community well-being while ensuring that that contribution is sufficiently transparent to interested parties and the public. Well, that sounds good. It sounds great. And I, I doubt anybody would have any difficulty with that objective. But the problem is that when you actually read the detail of the bill, it just doesn't do that. In, in what way? Well, for example, it says that it doesn't. It, it wants to reduce the uh, obligations on charities, but one of its provisions is to introduce Section 42G, which will require charities to every registered charity to review their governance procedures annually. Now, the the whole concept of the duties on those that govern organisations is an area of law where angels fear to tread, as we've seen from the the level of work that went into articulating the duties in the companies. Act and the Trusts Act and the Incorporated Societies Act. And this obligation just cuts across all of that. It was not consulted on at all. It was slipped into the regulatory impact statement after all consultation is closed. It has no basis in the underlying law. Does it actually even reflect that there are many different types of charities? Exactly. I mean, there are some charities with just a few people involved and there are others probably with hundreds or thousands. Exactly. The, 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 there's no one size fits all in the charitable sector. And I've been listening to the submissions that are being made. And, and charities, are. this is one of the key issues that is being raised and uh, charities are not happy with this new restriction. And the response from the committee is, oh, OK, well, if, if, if annually is too much, what, what time frame should it be? <laughs> and my response to that is, no, the law is already very clear. The, uh, everyone governing a charity has fiduciary duty to act in the best interests of the stated charitable purposes of the charity in accordance with its rules and the general law. We don't need more law. We need to enforce the law that is already there. And I'm very concerned that we get these hodgepodge, you know, piecemeal amendments that haven't been properly thought through that will tie charities up in knots. And I, I personally would like to see that clause removed from the bill. And um, well, that's just one clause. There are probably many more. One, exactly. What else is wrong? <laughs> <laughs> well, another one that's related to that is proposed new section 36A, which says that the role of an officer of a, of a registered charity is to assist it to deliver on its charitable purpose. Now well, again, that sounds all right. It sounds all right, but again, it's subject to all the same difficulties with that with Section Forty Two G. It doesn't accurately state the role of a officer of a charitable entity, and how will it interact with that underlying law, which charities will still be required to comply with? And really, what these are really are just sticks to beat charities over the head with that, they, that can be used to deregister them if they're doing something that the that the Department of Internal Affairs doesn't like. So what I would like to see is actually... That's all a bit Orwellian. It, it is. It, it, it sounds grand and the state wants to help you and have a proper governance structure for your charity and we want to make sure that those working in the charity do the right job. But actually, we're fine, and if not, we'll register you. Exactly, and and it, it really it really worries me the the direction of travel. Yeah. Mm. So, how far progressed is this bill? 
Well, it's before the Social Services and Community Select Committee. You've I've, had submissions already? They, they've, they received 91 submissions. I've read all of the submissions. They are now hearing submissions, but they're also hearing the Accessibility for New Zealanders bill at the same time. They were due to report back on the 28th of March, but that's actually been extended to the 4th of May. But in my view, that is still a very short time frame. to Especially to, given everything else currently before exactly, Parliament. Exactly, exactly. And everything else that charities are, are dealing with. And the submissions are overwhelmingly saying, we don't want this bill, we want you to honour your manifesto commitment to, to conduct a proper first principles review of the Charities Act, independently of DIA and with proper rather than targeted consultation. And the Select Committee has come back and said, oh, but manifesto is different from government policy, they're very different things. But the problem is, we've never had an explanation as to why the Labour Party manifesto has not become government policy. Labour has an absolute majority in Parliament. It's in a rare and privileged position. It it has no obstacle to actually honouring its policy, which is being called for by the charitable sector. But instead we get these, it says in the bill, oh no, no, the fundamentals of the Act are considered sound and fit for purpose and the definition of charitable purpose is working well. So we don't need to do a first principles review. And, and the problem is, is that... The charitable sector is saying very loudly and very clearly the fundamentals of the sector are not sound. How can we determine if it's fit for purpose? Because we haven't agreed what that purpose is because that question has been specifically taken off the, the table. How can you say the definition of charitable purpose is working well when charities like Family First are being deregistered for engaging in the democratic process? We need to look at these issues, but we've never had an explanation. So what appears to be the case is that the Minister is listening to DIA but not listening to the concerns of the charitable sector. And there is no public debate. No, because it's the the charitable sector has been described by Professor Salomon, who's a leading the late Professor Salomon, a leading charities law researcher. He describes the charitable sector as the invisible subcontinent on the landscape of most countries, poorly understood by policymakers and the public at large, encumbered by unnecessary legal limitations, and inadequately utilised as a mechanism for resolving social problems. You know, the answer, in my view, to so much of what ails our species is is answered by people coming together in groups. You know, communities know what communities need, but they're being prevented by this ill-thought-through legislation from, from doing what, what we need them to do, like helping people into social housing, you know, addressing climate change, addressing biodiversity loss, addressing poverty, increasing inequality. Why are we hobbling charities with this bill. Well, I've got a suspicion. <laughs> we here at the initiative, we are great believers in localism. We are great believers in community-led solutions, uh, in subsidiarity, whatever you want to call it. What we have seen, of course, is a government that does the opposite. I mean, they claim to be great believers in subsidiarity. It's, I think it's even in some Labour Party manifesto. But in government, they have done the precise opposite. They have centralised nearly everything, and they've tried to centralise the rest. So isn't that just a case in point where central government actually just tries to grab more power, centralise more power, bring more decision-making together here in Wellington, mm. and, and run the country from Wellington? Isn't mm. that just an application of this centralisation of everything we've seen over the last few years? Well, I, I don't know if it is or not, but I certainly think that, that that is what is happening, is that charities are basically being brought within the uh, umbrella or the aegis of the state. And what that is effectively doing is undermining their independence. It's undermining their ability to be innovative, to, to catalyse real change, to act as a voice for those that might not otherwise have a voice. It's basically undermining our democracy. So, I mean, I, would I have heard Labour ministers saying, well, we know that government can't do everything. We know there are lessons to be learned from the COVID 
COVID pandemic when the charitable sector really stepped up and where would the government have been without the charitable sector during the pandemic and and post-Cyclone Gabriel and, you know, all <laughs> in many other types of situations. So why? Why are they hobbling the charitable sector with this act and this bill? And why? <laughs> do, you, do you think it is a political decision by this government to do this or is it something where the bureaucracy basically runs it? I base I I don't know, but I my hunch is that this is being driven by DIA, who have because so by the lower case government. Yes, by by by, by bureaucrats, and yes. public servants. Yes, that is what I think. That is what I see. I'm a member of the core reference group, so I've been intimately involved in this process since it began. I see DIA ca- capturing the ministers, basically a sequence of them, and. Charities are being prevented from speaking truth to power because they, they don't get the opportunity to do that until decisions have already been made. And then we're told the decisions have been made. So really the only hope that we have of stopping this bill from getting through and from trying to get a Charities Act that actually enables charitable work rather than restricts it is through the parliamentary process. So I would really encourage anyone who cares about our democracy, who cares about our communities, civil society, to get engaged with this bill and let the select committee know that this is not good enough. We need a bill that actually works for charities, not one that just creates more power for DIA. The ministers you mentioned before involved in this space in the last few years were probably not the top-ranked cabinet ministers, if they were on the front bench at all. Is that a problem, actually, that we give it to relatively junior ministers, um, ministers really far down the pecking order who have little political capital they could use and are therefore basically run by the department? It's a perennial problem. And it, it goes back to Professor Salomon's comment that the charitable sector is the invisible subcontinent. So it's not seen as important. It's seen as an easy portfolio. You know, the, it's over here, off to the side. It doesn't really matter. So we'll give it to a new minister, let them cut their teeth. And then you get some nice photo opportunities when you visit charities around the country. But basically you have no say. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it must be very difficult for a brand new minister to be able to stand up to incumbent officials who who are, you know, absolutely convinced that they've got the answer and just listen to them and don't listen to anyone else. It must be very difficult for a minister because that will put them into conflict with their officials. So we, we need a better process. We need charities to be able to have a proper say in policy that affects them. I think that was a very clear message. (laughs) So hopefully with this podcast, we have filled a gap in the New Zealand media scene. We've talked about a bill that I didn't even know existed until we talked about this before the podcast. Thank you very much, Sue, for shedding some light on these issues. And I'm sure we'll talk about it again. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you.